Hello and welcome to the Everyday Adventure Podcast. My name is Nikki Bass and I will be bringing you thoughts and ideas and hopefully some inspiration on how to build more adventure into your everyday life. So today I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Cornell Oosters into the show. Cornell is somebody I've known for over 10 years. We served in the army together. We both deployed to Afghanistan at the same time. And even back then, she struck me as somebody who was incredibly determined, resilient, and she also had a fantastic sense of humor and we got on straight away. And when I first thought of setting up this podcast, Cornell was the first person who sprang to mind. So Cornell is a professional wheelchair tennis player. She is a fledgling sports commentator and she is a Paralympic hopeful, hoping to compete at the Paralympic Games next year. And to me, she has always epitomized what the phrase silver linings is all about. I will let her share her story in her own words, but needless to say, I hope you are inspired by what she has to say as I have been by her journey. So Cornell, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I guess my first question really is if I could ask you just to share a bit about your story of how you came to be a professional tennis player, where it started from and what inspired you really to to pursue that path. To be fair, since I was a a kid really, about four years old, my first proper childhood dream was to to become a tennis professional and to win Wimbledon. That didn't quite work out for me able-bodied, but towards the back end of my military career, I sustained a sports injury, which led to me being medically discharged, and it affected my right lower limb in terms of my, my right leg. And through actually a fellow tennis player in the Royal Air Force, she sort of kicked me up the backside when I was feeling a bit sorry for myself with all of this malarkey going on, to go and trial for the Invictus Games. And I was very fortunate to be selected for the UK team that represented uh, uh, the country in Toronto in 2017. And one of the disciplines I, I participated in, competed in, was the wheelchair tennis, which I absolutely loved and adored. And to be fair, footwork was never a strength. So frankly, playing tennis on on, uh, on wheels have uh, has hopefully served me better than perhaps on my on my two feet. <laughs> And then, yeah, as a result of that, I was uh, fortunate to be uh, identified by the Lawn Tennis Association for their talent identification program, and also through Help for Heroes, one of the charities heavily involved with the Invictus Games, for the Paralympic Inspiration Program in association with the British Paralympic Association. And as of the beginning of 2019, I was essentially taken on board on the Lawn Tennis Association's performance pathway for uh, uh, full-time wheelchair tennis players. And, uh, and now, yeah, gunning for, you know, hopefully fulfilling most, if not all of my, uh, my ambitions in that regard. Amazing. And I know you've started, so you recently started doing a bit of commentating as well. How was that? You've gone from being a player as well as <laughs> being behind the mic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very different. It's actually really hard work mentally because you obviously can't just sort of, you know, say anything and then shoot off the hip. But it's very, it's very useful to, you know, to obviously learn more of the game by virtue of observing it and commentating actively on it. It's really enjoyable, but if, if given a choice, I'd still prefer to, to play tennis for a bit longer before I perhaps <laughs> yeah. dip into commentating a bit, uh, a bit more, unless it's a hint from the, uh, <laughs> from the, <laughs> the LTA to go, uh, well, Susan, maybe you should just stick to commentating and leave the <laughs> tennis to us. <laughs> at least there's an alternative you need it I guess but it's also I it's really interesting that point about actually sometimes observing other people and being forced to observe really 
you know, really notice as opposed to just watching on TV like the rest of us do, but how that then impacts on your, your own game as well and how you, you progress as a player, I suppose. So, I, I mean, I know that you've faced a lot of challenges since 2014 and that initial diagnosis. There must have been challenges you've faced as well on this journey of becoming a professional tennis player. What, what are the sort of things that you feel, actually, I'm really, I'm really proud to have overcome that or I'm re- actually, that wasn't something I expected, but you know what? <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's taken me in a place that actually, you know, uh, it's taken me a step further than maybe I would have got to before. I think for me, the most poignant aspect is probably, so at the back end of 2018, as a result of the medical condition that I had developed in my leg, I had an elective amputation below my right, my right knee, which was obviously a fairly, fairly big mm. uh, surgery and, and clearly had some, uh, some obvious uh, practical impacts on my life. And so actually getting used to being in the wheelchair with a slight imbalance was initially a bit uh, uh, interesting in that I initially played sort of without a prosthetic then we attached a prosthetic to the tennis chair and we sort of played around with it a bit mm. and also obviously uh, certainly throughout 2019 the uh, uh, the stump was still in a very much in a healing process so that was a bit tricky I suppose yeah to manage the intensity that you needed to train full-time and obviously be as good as you can with the reality of also having gone through a fairly uh, robust surgery And then I think the other thing as well from a tennis perspective has been mentally competing as an amateur versus competing as a professional are two very, very different beasts. And I've I've always loved, you know, competing. And there's a phrase in the military, which I'm sure you'll appreciate. I've always had a healthy dose of of red mist in my system. (laughs) Um, But certainly as as a professional, it's been important to learn how to channel that red mist more constructively and more effectively. Than perhaps you might as an amateur, and that's obviously still a process that I'm that I'm learning and becoming better at, and I'm enjoying very much as well. And then just the sheer difference in movement on court because you're in a wheelchair. For those listeners who perhaps are not familiar with tennis as a sport, when you're on your feet, you tend to move from side to side and towards the ball. Whereas if you're in a wheelchair playing tennis, it's very counterintuitive in terms of movement compared to what you may have done as an able-bodied player because you're moving diagonally and often away from the ball to give yourself a bit more time to get to it. So your brain sort of, as having been a formal, uh, having been an able-bodied player before, I'm still very much thinking as an able-bodied player when I move in the chair, but obviously slowly but surely that balance is turning, which is, which is helping my cause along. <laughs> yeah, really, which, yeah, yeah, it's really important. <laughs> Gosh, that's really fascinating, isn't it? Because that's probably not something that I mean, I wonder if that's something that you considered you would have to adapt to before being in that situation. I mean, certainly that sort of, in a way, disconnect between what your body is doing and and what your mind thinks it's doing. Do you get sort of, I don't know if support's the right word, but for like sports psychologists who are able to help you marry up those those two elements? Or is it, I mean, I guess, like you said, part of it's the experience of just getting used to. Yeah, I mean, with regards to the mental side of, of sort of performing as a professional, we do have a, a sports psychologist that we can see on a weekly basis, as and when we're not touring, you know, and playing tournaments abroad. She's coincidentally also the, the sports psychologist we happen to have for the Toronto uh, Invictus Games. So I coincidentally got to know her there, which was a, a nice, uh, uh, yeah, a nice link to have had when she then obviously pitched up at the LTA. So, uh, so that was really useful to have that. I've established, uh, you know, a relationship mm. in that regard before. 
And then practically with regards to the movement, uh, we also do a lot of movement drills that sort of reinforce uh, mm. sort of the, the motions of it so that you retrain essentially your, your body and, and sort of the, I suppose, the muscular remembering uh, as such. So you sort of unlearn the old approach with a view to relearn the new approach. And then over time, that balance should hopefully tip in the right direction, which, which it is starting to do. It just doesn't happen overnight, which mm. if you're impatient, uh, sometimes <laughs> you need to... Re- <laughs> Remind yourself Rome going back to the red mist, day. yeah, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> awesome. So, I guess my next question is sort of slightly related in that, I mean, what have been? There's obviously the benefit of, like you said, being able to realise a dream, albeit in a, in a slightly different way, but still, nonetheless. I mean, gosh, to be playing professional tennis, just just incredible. So, th- there's the sort of obvious benefits of doing this, but I'm just wondering in terms of what have been some of the unexpected benefits? So, the things that you didn't necessarily even know were would happen, or you know that you've, so I guess, reflected back on as as they've occurred. Well, I've always been a massive tennis geek. So, um, by virtue of training at the uh, National Tennis Centre in Roehampton, I every now and again have the privilege of bumping into the likes of you know Andy Murray and and mm. Heather Watson. And- some of the you know the legends of, of the British game I'm not by any means not yet mates with any of them if ever but as a tennis geek you sometimes just you know stop and take a moment and especially around Wimbledon time some of the other international players tend to train around that area as well so sometimes you just literally go oh my word I've literally just walked past like don't stalk don't stalk um so Have from a, a tennis geek moment, perspective yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> Like, don't ask him for a selfie. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> oh, no, um, I'm doing it now. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's really cool from a, obviously from a more platonic perspective. Um, mm. But actually also being exposed to, I suppose, a broader world of disability, which until I myself was injured, I just had no idea about. I wasn't exposed to it really much, if at all, in my life, especially in the military and also mm. within my family and stuff. And so actually what's been really useful is, you know, getting to learn so much more about people with a wide variety of disabilities that play tennis in in the wheelchair tennis world. And hopefully by extension, becoming a slightly less ignorant individual in that regard, because even now at times, I'm still astounded by my own level of ignorance, even though I'm also now classed as disabled or differently able. And so really in that regard, it's been fascinating to learn and to get to know people who, you know, perhaps, I don't know, 10 years ago, I would have also done a double take to go, gosh, that's a person in a wheelchair or ooh, mm. he's missing a leg or whatever. But actually, like anyone, they're just normal people. And once you get to know them, you know, it's, it's wonderful to, to see and experience how quickly you forget about the disability or the wheelchair, whatever the context might be, and, and that you can just look at them as people and hopefully vice versa. It's, it's, it's sort of the same, you know, for you as well, because I think for me, having been able-bodied and then becoming disabled later in my life, initially that, that, I had a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder about that and I felt quite self-conscious about it. But actually that was more my problem, frankly, than, you know, it necessarily being a, a real genuine issue. So that that sort of transition in terms of my own perspective and my own ideas about myself and my identity and by extension other athletes, you know, that are just differently abled um, has, has hopefully also changed uh, for the better. So, so actually in that regard, it's been a pleasant surprise. So yeah, I, hopefully mm. that's... Uh, that covers it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, sort of broadening it out more widely, because I guess it's something I've become more and more conscious of. And I was also thinking prior to, to us chatting for the podcast as well, that so many, when we're talking about some of the adventures that people undertake and that we've certainly discussed as part of this podcast, and so many of them rely on you being able to access 
spaces and in order to access them, actually you have to be able to physically access them. I'm just thinking, you know, even the simple act of, you know, right, let's go for a walk in the park to get your headspace cleared or, you know, <laughs> hiking, whatever it is actually that, that I think in a way that there is so much we take for granted, but that also, like you said, just being able to see it from a different perspective and go, hold on, that that's a responsibility for all of us, not just for people who are, you know, it's not the people who are struggling or who can't access these spaces. That actually the responsibility sits with everybody to try and, like you said, extend those too. And I just, I mean, I guess I was just wondering about sort of more widely than tennis. Is that something that you've encountered and that has surprised you as you've, you know, gone along on this journey or, you know, what have you been um, your experiences? Yeah, a little bit. Again, I suppose I'm, in relative terms, very fortunate because I have the option of, of donning a prosthetic leg when I need it. That's been a bit of a hit and miss process so far, but fundamentally I can walk if I need to yeah. or if I must. And that makes a big difference. So we were, for example, just last weekend or last week rather away at a tournament abroad on the seaside or, or rather very close to the seaside. And the guys and girls in wheelchairs couldn't really access the beach because there wasn't, you know, a wooden jetty that would extend far enough. Whereas I was very lucky the last morning I had a bit of extra time. So I sort of hobbled along on the prosthetic to the beach and, and I was able to hop into the sea, you know, because I can mm. use my leg. Whereas if I was fully wheelchair bound, no chance. And it's simple things like that where you go actually often the practicalities to help people along that might be less able physically to get stuck in with an adventure is not always as insurmountable as it might appear. Mm. Granted, sometimes it is, you know, mounting Everest in a wheelchair. I'm all for, you know, up for a challenge, but that's probably going to be logistically <laughs> a bit, a bit more be fair, mounting beast. Everest at all. Yes. I'm like, granted. You know, so I think it's all yeah. relative, but also the more often than not, the attitude of, of the, the guys and girls that I've met so far is, is, is very humbling because, you know, they just get on with it one way or the other or, or sort of do what they can to the best of their abilities or to the best that the opportunity or the situation allows them to. And, and they're not held back per se. You know, they're not sort of sat at home um, no, sort of sure. waiting their lives away. Actually, uh, a lot of them do phenomenal stuff quite consistently mm -hmm. as a way of life. So in that regard, it also helps you to regain perspective perhaps when you start to feel a bit sorry for yourself but also to think about practical ways in which actually it can be quite easy to, to make things a bit more accessible for more people. Um, mm. So yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, I mean, that's so true. And like you said, actually, when you see what people are capable of and get round and <laughs> overcome, like you said, that that's, that's really useful, I think, to reflect on when, <laughs> you know, you feel like, yeah, certainly for me when I'm thinking, <laughs> well, I'm, you know, <laughs> I don't really feel like going for a run or I don't feel like doing this today, which happens quite regularly. <laughs> but you could go, okay, well, like you said, th there is the option there and it's something I don't have to think about. And I think when we're, you know, certainly with so many of the discussions I've had around inclusivity and accessibility, particularly in outdoor spaces, it's about mm. when you have the privilege of not having to think about something. Granted, and yeah. And just reflecting <laughs> on that. So I guess... I mean, I know a little bit about what's next because we've talked about what, what hopefully will be coming, COVID permitting and all that. Have you got any other, I mean, are there any other things that actually having got started with the, with the tennis that you think actually that this is something else that I'd really like to give a go or I'd like to achieve? Well, I think this, frankly, I mean, even though I've obviously had a number of good jobs in my time, especially in the military, this is by far the best day job I've ever had. I'm not going to lie. Um, and I do savour it. 
you know, every morning, uh, uh, in addition to being a tennis geek, it is literally as close as you can get to heaven on earth, frankly, in my, in my book. But I think, yeah, for me, it's, it's tennis-wise, uh, obviously improving my singles ranking to the degree that I could hopefully qualify for the Paralympics in Tokyo. Failing that, uh, hopefully the Paralympics in 2024 in Paris is, would be the next medium-term goal. And then equally improving my ranking to hopefully go and compete and ideally win some Grand Slam tournaments. Because for wheelchair tennis players at the moment, the draws for the Grand Slams are tiny. It's the, the top seven to eight players in the world. So I've got a, a little way to go yet before my ranking is in the sig- single digits, but I'm up for a challenge. So yeah, and it's just making sure I can obviously optimize my ability as a tennis player and hopefully develop my craft to the extent that you would expect a professional to do. But beyond that, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I, I still have a fair bit of adventurous fire in my bones. And actually, even though I know we, we sort of jested about scaling Everest in wheelchairs, you know, potentially a, a, a group of us might be able to get to base camp, for instance. Or I certainly want to visit, you know, both the North and the South Pole at some stage still. So perhaps with organizations like the Endeavor Fund, Walking with the Wounded, and or a number of other you know, charities uh, with a military bent as such, there may well be opportunities in the future. I'd love to circ- uh, circumnavigate the world uh, solo in a, in a sailboat, swim the channel, you know, so I, I, better, I better crack on with all that. <laughs> yes, not much then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like to keep busy. So, so no, and, and, you know, we'll see with technology as well, um, yeah. especially in the prosthetics context. You know, fingers crossed. In 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 three to five years, it may well become much more realistic than it than it might be at the minute, and I may may well just have to marry for money and not for love to fund all my uh, adventurous expeditions. So, uh, so no, that, <laughs> it's good to have a plan, though. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and I absolutely have no doubt that if anyone's going to do all of those things, it will absolutely be you. <laughs> so, so we'll be getting you back on the show when <laughs> after your channel sim and all the rest of it as well. Amazing. Thank so, you. <laughs> so if there's anyone listening to this who's thinking, actually, you know, I want to get started, whether it's in a sport or an adventure context and having those sort of doubts around, can I do this? How do I even begin? You know, you've done some really adventurous, and I know throughout your entire career in, in the army and, and since, you've done so many sort of adventurous things and way more adventurous probably than, than the norm would be considered, the baseline. <laughs> but what's the one piece of advice that you'd give someone? I think is it is to just go for it. So inevitably, you know, there's moments where you think, can I? You know, you see perhaps other people do it and you're like, oh, good for them, but I can't do it. Actually, you know, more often than not, just deciding to start something is actually the biggest step. And then just embracing it as you go along. That's not to say you won't doubt yourself or you might not, you know, you may, may encounter fear or whatever, but actually... More often than not, when you look back to it, you know, it's often literally that choice of going, do you know what, come hell or high water, I'm going to do it. And then by all means, do your research. Again, we're so lucky in this day and age that there's access to to gain to people who've done something similar before. You know, if, if, if you need more information or you want to know, you know, more about the realities, then pick their brains. People on average tend to be very happy to sort of share, you know, their experiences and, and you might, well, in my experience, more often than not, you tend to surprise yourself as well, pleasantly, more often than not, by sort of actually extending your limits. And it doesn't have to be scaling Mount Everest for the first adventure. You know, it might just be going for a, I don't know, a 10-minute run every day for the first, I don't know, two or three months, and then pushing that up to a 15-minute run. You'll know your temperament, obviously, much better than, than anyone else. So, so scale it in accordance to what you're initially sort of comfortable with, but also a little bit uncomfortable with. 
and then just sort of inch along. And before you know it, you'll be scaling Everest. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, no, I love that. It's, I, I call it nibbling at the edge of your comfort zone. <laughs> it's just... Yes, that's a great phrase. Yeah, and take some snacks. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And always snacks. never take a risk on snacks. <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Pack enough of those. <laughs> <laughs> amazing thanks so much Connor. if people want to follow find out more about your journey or follow you and um, and find out more what, what you do where can they go i think the best place is probably just my website which also has links to my social media although i need to acknowledge i'm a bit of a social media uh, i sort of surface for you know for one or two posts and then disappear for about two or three months but yeah just uh, cornelia uk. And then, yeah, um, obviously would love for, for anyone to follow my journey and uh, I, I'll try my best to do you know, everyone proud. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much again. It's been such a pleasure to see you. I could carry on chatting for a very long time, but I will stop there. And like I said, I need to, I need to leave space to get you back in when, when the next adventures <laughs> kick in too. Um, and very good. best Sounds of luck good. with all your training and, and, and competitions as well. And look forward to speaking you. to you again soon. Take Absolutely. care. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye. So as I mentioned in my introduction to the interview, one of the reasons I wanted to speak to Cornell for this podcast was because she was one of the inspirations for me setting it up. That was for a number of different reasons. But one of those reasons is that to me, Cornell really embodies what we mean when we talk about resilience. And I just wanted to touch on that word resilience this week, because it's one of those words that gets thrown around and bandied around so often and particularly at the moment you know I don't think a day goes by when I don't see it mentioned on a LinkedIn post or you know on social media and resilience is really important but I also think that we don't necessarily have a common understanding of what resilience actually is and what it means and I think it is used to represent so many different aspects of how we feel about ourselves or how we are able to act when we're faced with challenging situations and that might mean that we're able to just get through it in the moment or that we are digging in and keeping on going but actually resilience is something that is subtly different from that and to me one of the best ways to think about resilience it's a question i always ask the first question i always ask whenever i'm running a workshop for clients whether that is a corporate workshop, whether it is individual clients, the first thing I always ask is, what is resilience? And I get them to think about an analogy. And I like to use nature as an analogy because I think it's a very good way of illustrating the point. So I get them to think about, okay, what's what, what's one thing in nature that you consider to be really resilient? And I usually get a whole span of answers ranging from cockroaches to dandelions to different types of trees. Trees are often really common. And one of my favorite analogies is to think about the difference between a cliff, like a cliff that's jutting out to sea, and the water and the waves that are crashing on the rocks below it. And when we think about a cliff, we tend to think about something that's pretty strong, pretty sturdy, pretty immovable. It's very fixed, strong, tough rock. And that's often an image that would, would spring to mind in terms of something that we consider resilient. People sometimes talk about oak trees, they talk about rocks, they talk about something that in their mind feels solid and strong. But then if we make the comparison to the water, something interesting starts coming to mind. So with a cliff, what happens with that water is that over time, those waves as it crashes through will start to erode the cliff. It'll start to crumble, to eat away at it. And the cliff will take on a different shape, but at some point it may, may start to fall down. It may start to fall into the sea. 
And that water that is being stopped in a way by the cliff is finding a way through. It is adapting. And, and anyone who's ever built a dam as a child will know that we put the rocks up and the, and the water stops for a bit, but eventually it starts to seep through. And the thing about water is, although it feels fluid and, and sometimes a little bit intangible, it always finds a way to make its way to where it needs to be. And to do that, it adapts, it changes, it may freeze over time, it may unfreeze, it can take different shapes and different forms, but it finds a path to where it needs to be. And resilience is a little bit like that too. It's about not necessarily not being stopped in your tracks for a period of time. It's not about being immovable and unchanged. It's about how you continue to see where it is that you want to get to or the place to where you feel okay. And keeping that in mind and being able to flex and adapt to the challenges that are thrown at you. So I want to leave you with that thought for this week's episode. As always, please do reach out to me and let me know what you think. You can find me on Instagram, Resilience at Work. You can find me on Facebook in the Everyday Adventure Club. Or go and visit my website, resiliencework.co.uk and drop me an email, drop me a line. And I'd absolutely love to hear from you. I will be back again next week with another incredible guest. This will be at our new time of six o'clock next Friday to talk about all things everyday adventure. And I look forward to speaking to you then. Bye.